listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hi, Michelle. Hey, Sarah. Welcome to Belaboured, episode 168. The government shutdown is over for now, but the fight continues. This week, we'll hear more on the victorious Los Angeles teachers and what was won in their landmark contract. But first, the news. The government shutdown has ended, and it appears to have been workers who turned the tide. Specifically, air traffic controllers who stopped going to work for free, grounding planes at LaGuardia Airport, and probably causing Donald Trump to get angry phone calls from his rich friends that their flights were canceled. Sarah Nelson, president of the Association of Flight Attendants, had given a speech just days before where she said, in part, quote, almost a million workers are locked out or being forced to work without pay. Others are going to work when our workspace is increasingly unsafe. What is the labor movement waiting for? Go back with the fierce urgency of now to talk with your locals and international unions about all workers joining together to end this shutdown with a general strike. End quote. TSA workers had already been protesting at airports and were beginning to stop coming to work. Nelson called for immediate mobilization of flight attendants when it became apparent that LaGuardia had seen flights stopped. Here's a clip of that call. The only business that our country should be about today is opening the government. I need you to find your nearest congressional office, grab some friends, and go sit in that office and demand that the lawmakers open the government immediately and do nothing else until that is done. Our jobs are on the line here, and so is the rest of America. No one will be left unscathed. This is all we need to do today. I ask you to continue to call. Those of you who are in airports right now, on your way there, in the grocery stores, wherever you are, talk with everyone that you know and help them understand that as this unravels more and more and days go on, it will be hard to return. Because these air traffic controllers are also 20% of them eligible to retire. And some of them may not just be deciding not to come to work today because it's unsafe, but they may be deciding that they can no longer do this period and putting in those retirement paperwork. We're already at 30-year lows for air traffic controllers, and we won't be able to get the system back up and running again, even if we end the shutdown, if it continues. So it is urgent today that we change this. Okay? We're going to do this for the transportation security officers who have been sleeping in their cars because they don't have gas to get back and forth from their homes, and it will continue to come to try to keep us safe. We're going to do this for the law enforcement officers who have asked us for help, who are working in our federal prisons, with violent offenders, with less staff, less resources, and no pay. We're going to do this for every single person who is hurting out there, because this needs to stop now. This is over a month-long lockout of a million people. This is not America. Flight attendants, we have more contact with the public than nearly anyone else. Use your influence right now. Talk about your job your safety, your security for all of us, and impress upon the lawmakers that they need to open the government today. I stand with all of you. I'll keep you updated. And I am so proud to be your president of the Association of Flight Attendants, CWA. And Trump blinked. But there's still a ways to go. The deal to end the shutdown was only temporary, and Nelson and others within labor are organizing to be prepared to end another shutdown. And then there's the issue of contractors. While direct federal employees will get back pay, there's no provision for federal contractors to do so. Democrats in Congress have a bill to get them paid, but so far only one Republican seems to care. 
a lot of those contractors are low-wage workers, they're cafeteria workers, etc., who live paycheck to paycheck already and are not able to just go without for a month. There are up to 580,000 people who may have missed pay without any promise of back wages, and so the fight continues. President Obama famously made fun of art history students when he championed the value of a strong skills-based education to train the next generation of workers. Now the Trump administration has picked up on that note by attempting to boost job training in the way that Trump does best, by throwing a lot of money at a federal program and then privatizing it. The Labor Department plans to overhaul the Federal Apprenticeship Program, one of the pillars of our workforce development infrastructure. And while the system has traditionally provided an on-ramp for workers to high-paying, high-skilled industrial trades, Mary Alice McCarthy of the New America Foundation warns in Inside Higher Ed that, quote, rather than focus its efforts on growing a small but high-performing system of registered apprenticeship, the administration has opted for building an entirely new system of industry-recognized apprenticeship programs. So apprenticeships have been seen as the gold standard for job training because they are administered through a tightly regulated program under universities and unions and overseen by the Department of Labor. These new programs, however, will be narrowly focused on commercial career tracks like IT. And while that's not problematic in and of itself, it's also replacing an existing extensive regulated system of programs that have strict criteria. They're certified based on several quality control measures, such as classroom instruction time, on-the-job training exposure, and wages and working conditions. The new system will be based on looser benchmarks. These will be granted through vaguely described accreditation programs, and the new standards for accreditation are, quote, much less comprehensive, as McCarthy writes, and thus far lack any clear enforcement mechanism. Hmm, sounds familiar. Basically, it means less control over the quality of programs and more apprentices being channeled into less regulated, potentially subpar, potentially exploitative program. Apprenticeships are especially vulnerable to exploitation because the apprentices are banking on the promise of a future job in exchange for training now and potentially lower wages, making them more dependent on their employer and thus less likely to challenge working conditions. Advocates now fear that the apprenticeship program is being watered down in the same way that for-profit colleges, which have also used a lax accreditation system, have created a major taxpayer boondoggle in higher education. As we've reported before here on Belabored, these corporate college companies have been able to commercialize and corporatize academia, leading to masses of marketing fraud, excessive debt for students, and chronic corruption. Now the same market logic seems to be spreading into apprenticeships. And, of course, all the while, Betsy DeVos at the Department of Education is also working to expand for-profit colleges, too. But it's the apprenticeship workers, who are typically unemployed blue-collar folks, who may be even less able than typical college students to afford the cost of being cheated once again by corporate America. Teachers in West Virginia are having their Empire Strikes Back moment as the state legislature is pushing a raft of anti-union bills forward, but they're not going to take it. Already, Mingo County educators have voted for another walkout, and we spoke with Brandon Walford, a Mingo County teacher and our guest from last year's Belabored Live at Labor Notes, about these continued attacks and what West Virginia educators are doing. What is all the stuff that they're proposing in the state legislature? First of all, they are pushing charter schools, and that will completely defund, destroy public education. They're 
trying to base it on the idea that we're 45th in the nation as far as test scores go, but their solution to the problem is not, there's no possible way that it could even work because they're wanting to put people in the classroom who don't even have degrees, certifications, all they're going to require is a GED. So that's one thing they're trying to do. They're wanting to increase class size, which is typically around 23 to 25 students in the elementary. They're wanting to bump that up to 28 and allow overage up to 31. They're wanting everything to be privatized and pull all the money from the public sector. And there's not even any charter schools set up anywhere to even start doing this. Mm -hmm. So not only are they defunding us, but they're also, it's a disservice to the students. Mm -hmm. Secondly, they're trying to do payroll protection which will keep our unions from deducting funds to keep our unions going. They're also trying to make it to where if we strike, we can't make up the days. Uh, we would be penalized on seniority. They're trying to allow homeschooled children to take 75% of their funding home to their parents. Anything and everything that they can come up with to come after us as a result of last year. I just feel like it's all retaliation. Mm -hmm. They don't want us to be able to use seniority during the RIF and transfer process if we were laid off, mm -hmm. which is basically if you whoever's been there the longest gets to stay, that's, that's a fair way to do it. Mm -hmm. They're wanting to allow local boards, superintendents, to just pretty well handpick whoever they want, which would make the jobs more political. Mm -hmm. They're proposing that the boards would be able to raise taxes and levy rates on their own without any type of election or approval from the people. The list goes on and on and on. We find something new every time we look through it. So where you are, I understand that y'all have, have voted for another walkout. Yes. We got a 97% vote to call one day of action, and we're still discussing the date as far with our union leaders as far as that goes. We don't have a date set in stone yet. <clears throat> We're kind of sitting back hoping that this will go away before we have to do that. But we have also called for a statewide plan of action, and that vote will be taking place tomorrow. Mm -hmm. That's tomorrow, Friday. Yeah, and what's the sort of reaction, like what's going on in the conversations you're having with other teachers around the state? Where I live, everyone is set up, they're ready to go. In other areas of the state, they're a little more hesitant. Um, they're thinking maybe we should give them a little more time. <clears throat> but once again, the people here in Mingo County are usually the ones that start it. So yeah. it's typical that they're ready to go. But they're still a little hesitant. Everyone is like I am. They still remember last year. They remember the stress. They remember the uncertainty. And there's still some fear there, but they know that they must be ready and on their toes. Even the ones that are hesitant know that we have to have something in place ready to go in case we have to call for some type of action very swiftly. Who is it that's pushing this in the legislature? 100%. Mitch Carmichael, he has been out for blood since last year. He yeah. thinks that we made him look bad since we did not back down from him when he was trying to dissolve PEIA. 
we all stood up to him, and he is out to get us. He is the very one behind us. What are you getting a sense, like, in terms of support? Do you feel like you have, you know, a good amount of people on your side? Absolutely. We have as much support as we did last year. This time we even have, I think, more support from our central offices, our superintendent, the state board. I know last year they didn't exactly come out and go against us, but this year they are speaking out as loudly, if not louder, than we are. Mm -hmm. So that on top of the public, I think we have a great amount of support. I think it has actually grown from last year. And just looking around the country, I mean, I just got back from Los Angeles myself from that strike, but looking around the country and what happened since you've gone out, what is the sense you have if you have to go out again? Well, for one, I do think it will end successfully. I think every minute will be stressful. I think we will have to fight. But I do think that in the end, it will be worth it. I even have thought at times, you know, maybe the entire country just needs to strike. All teachers everywhere, all at once, until they raise our pay, give us better wages, better working conditions. Something's got to give. We are the most underappreciated, underpaid people in the country. That was Brandon Walford, Mingo County educator. The rarefied world of corporate mergers and acquisitions seems to be an inner sanctum for high-flying CEOs, financiers, and Wall Street lawyers. We usually think of the next big telco or software merger in terms of whether it will raise or lower the price of the services or products we buy. But maybe we should pay less attention to our cable bill and more attention to how that gigantic merger will impact our paychecks. So this is a new study out by the Roosevelt Institute and Economic Policy Institute, which traces the economic impacts on local labor markets from a pending mega-merger between Sprint and T-Mobile. These two mobile giants claim that they will help wireless consumers everywhere and deliver better services if they merge into one giant national service provider, gaining economies of scale and market efficiency. But for retail workers who sell phones in your neighborhood, it could mean a huge pay cut. In 50 major labor markets nationwide, the study concludes that, at the highest estimate, weekly earnings will decline by $63 on average, while the smallest projection would average $10 a week. Over the course of an average year, total income could fall by as much as over $3,200. Some communities are especially at risk. Workers in Atlanta, for instance, could see potential weekly wage reductions ranging from $15 to $97. Weekly retail wages in the Chicago area would see declines in the range of about $12 to $75. In the New York area, up to $86 per week. The erosion of workers' earnings reflects an often overlooked ripple effect of monopoly power, the evil twin of the labor market known as monopsony. That's a new word. When corporations merge, they strengthen their grip on the local labor market. It's not just the consumer market that's at stake. These so-called efficiencies that the corporations are touting, therefore, are often paid for at the expense of the workforce. And those wage reductions don't even take into account the even more devastating impact of potential layoffs. The CEOs in this deal claim that those job impacts aren't anything to worry about. But given how so many retail workers have been devastated by corporate consolidation in recent years, the prognosis looks grim. Marshall Steinbaum, co-author of the study, explains why antitrust regulation today pays far too little attention to the consequences of corporate monopolization for workers. 
there's been a lot of discussion of uh, the antitrust implications of what's called labor market monopsony, that is uh, buyer power in labor markets. Employers can uh, set wages and set working conditions such that uh, workers basically can take it or leave it and, you know, workers have to eat. So pretty much they'll take it. Um, and, you know, this the reason why this is kind of a budding area of research concern is um, there's lots of talk about wage stagnation overall in the macro economy. There's also lots of talk about consolidation of the economy um, and corporate power writ large. And a lot of people have rightly, in my view, tied those those realities to the weakening of our antitrust enforcement. So, um, you know, it's not really terribly well known to the public for good reason uh, that, you know, we've had a kind of revolution in antitrust enforcement in the last 40 years in this country, um, whereby the kind of grounds on which the government would challenge any a given merger or a monopoly or conduct that seemed threatening to competition, the, the grounds uh, the government would challenge it on were radically reduced. And one of the ways in which it was reduced is um, that only outcomes for consumers matter and in practice really only price effects matter. So your merger is, you know, the claim act says your merger is illegal if it tends to create a monopoly. That was the policy from 1914. Um, the reality now is that there's only even the remotest chance of having an antitrust challenge to a merger if you can predict that it's going to increase prices for consumers. And so there's been this interest in, oh, well, maybe the fact that antitrust isn't taking into into account labor markets uh, is, you know, part of the reason why we've seen overall um, stagnation in wages and, and uh, the reduction in the labor share of output and all sorts of labor market pathologies. So that's kind of the big background to bring that to the case of the Sprint T-Mobile merger, as with the rest of the economy, there's been a lot of consolidation in retail. And in this case, you know, just as it's a four to three merger among um, the provider, the sales of uh, wireless telecom services, um, there's also, you know, these services are vended through retail establishments. And so it would also be a consolidation on the, uh, of those retail establishments. Um, now, the merging parties claim that ultimately they'll actually create jobs as a result of this merger because uh, offsetting the fact that they might be closing some of the stores, they claim that they'll be investing in creating a 5G network that will ultimately, that investment will cause more people to be employed. Now, I kind of doubt that analysis, but the paper that we wrote doesn't really have anything to do with it. Um, the more the, the more important point of the paper is to say, well, just as antitrust takes price effects into account when you analyze mergers, what would happen if we took wage effects? We have this new literature on the effect of concentration and labor markets on employee wages. They find, you know, concentration will reduce wages. And the question is how much? Um, and we apply the kind of range of findings from those papers, the effect of changes in concentration on wages to the particular change in concentration that would be that would happen in the retail uh, labor market as a result of this merger. Right? I think, you know, when we talk about kind of the grand sweep of history and antitrust, there was basically a lot more uh, toleration or I would say acceptance of arguments, basically recognize the reality of corporate power. So you would have antitrust cases that would say, you know, this company it's not just big, but they also take steps to prevent anybody from competing with them and taking their market share away. And, you know, that grows their monopoly power and prevents it from being challenged by any entrance. And, there were, you know, there were lots of cases, especially, you know, kind of in the late 40s, I would say, is the heyday of antitrust when kind of the courts were much more receptive to all manner of arguments like that. And what that meant was that corporations that were powerful couldn't 
extend their power. They couldn't use their power to build more power uh, to the degree they can now. So I think this is, you know, when we talk about kind of how has the economy changed in the last 40 years, I think the, uh, the erosion of antitrust is a huge part of it because what it has done is allow powerful corporations to make use of uh, profitable and exploitative business models that were previously denied to it through the application of the antitrust laws. Right. And that very much has to do with exploiting workers. I would say the, um, you know, there's a really good paper by a grad student named Brian Kalachi right now about how kind of the franchising business model was built on the back of uh, marketing effort to loosen the antitrust laws. Um, and, you know, as I think anybody who pays attention to the state of labor in this country can tell you, you know, franchising is a huge way that workers are um, systematically kind of segregated from the profits of profitable corporations, how, you know, the kind of parent company can ex exercise de facto control over the workforce without being on the hook legally for um, minimum wage, maximum hours, uh, liability for, say, uh, injuries on the job. You know, there's this kind of very convenient segregation of economic power from economic liability enabled by lax antitrust as well as the laxification of labor laws and union and the erosion of union power that has kind of pushed a lot of workers into this gray area of not really being employed but also being entirely controlled by um, big corporations and that's been a huge source of profit for you know lots of the economy's leading firms that was Marshall Steinbaum of the Roosevelt Institute The United Teachers Los Angeles strike, which we discussed last episode, ended after six days with a groundbreaking contract that won victories in everything from policing in schools to green space to charter school caps to wages and lower class sizes. I spoke with Arlene Inouye, a member of the union's bargaining team who won that contract, about what's in it, how they won it, and what happens next for UTLA and teachers across the country. So let's start off with the contract and give us an idea of sort of what was in it and particularly what was groundbreaking in this deal. The thing that was really, I think, the most groundbreaking was our elimination of Article 1.5 mm -hmm. from the contract. And we couldn't even find any other locals that had a similar kind of article, which basically said that we didn't have to have any caps on class sizes. And so that's the reason why for, for decades it's been increasing. You know, the, we had no control over our classrooms right. and the numbers. So we actually held out on that one till the very end. Mm -hmm. We put that one, salary and special ed, which was a higher cost money item mm -hmm. toward the end of a negotiation so that we could get as much as we could yeah. on other items and put in, you know, common good demand uh, the charter cap as well as you know the funding for nurses counselors and librarians and yeah. a lot of other stuff uh, adult ed early you know something for early educators community schools yeah so that that was the like the kicker at at uh, the early morning hours of monday when the the superintendent first agreed but then he disagreed and he wasn't going to do it yeah so we were we were going to walk out um, and and say you know we can't we can't accept something without that for our members they would they mm -hmm. would probably you know eat us alive <laughs> right yeah we made it such a centerpiece of our of our demands um, so that was really key and and then we ended up getting it um, 
and, as well as actually we, we really got everything we wanted. We wanted more, but we didn't we didn't push uh, for everything because of the, you know the timing and everything for um, when you're in negotiation. Right. But we got the main pieces. So with the 1.5, we also had aspirin every school five days a week. And they had previously said, you know, they can't do it because of the shortage. So, you know, we did put in something where we would work with them on how to attract and retain nurses. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that was monumental. And then also getting the teacher librarian and the counselors, which Mm -hmm. these are like, pre-recession numbers where they've been cut and they haven't been restored. Yeah. Uh, so we needed that. And, of course, I, I would have liked more mental health uh, defined. It, it does open the door in a lot of ways, like with our community schools mm-hmm. or um, with central funding for nurses. Hopefully there will be more funding for other positions at the school site. But we, of course, uh, want to keep that up at, at the focus uh, for next time probably uh, in a stronger way, even though, like I said, there were some gains yeah. uh, for the mental health issues. So, yeah, every teacher got something, you know, from this contract. If they were KC-12, they will feel it with the class sizes. Uh, but also, you know, we have something for adult educators that will help them. And substitutes, you know, like an, a higher pay um, an opportunity to go to PDs, kind of a lot of little things, mm-hmm. uh, but that just kind of make things a little bit better for, for the employees of LA Unified. And then the way that we did the class sizes, I think the way to explain it mm-hmm. best is that we eliminated 1.5, so mm-hmm. now district has to uh, have hard caps. And then we have an MOU, a Memorandum of Understanding, from um, 2017, and, and then we have the contract, which have different numbers in them. And the reason why we have higher numbers in the MOU is because of, because of 1.5 and not having a cap and trying to give some numbers that were more realistic so that we could at least hold them to that. Mm-hmm. You know, in an MOU, but uh, but of course it didn't. It doesn't really help as long as there's a escape valve of 1.5. Right. Uh, no numbers are going to hold, but the numbers are different. So we're kind of closing the gap between what's in the contract, the numbers in the contract, and the numbers uh, that were in the memorandum of understanding. And for some, are some classes like if it's ELA, English language, and math in secondary, they will see immediate drop to 39 students. So that'll mm-hmm. be like seven students or maybe even more will be a drop. And then for elementary, for example, if it's TK through three, yeah. they won't see any drop because 27 is the state cap. So unless they had over over 27, you know, that number doesn't change. So it's going to vary a lot according to the grade, according to how many, you know, students you have. And then some of the high needs schools, elementary and middle school, will have an additional 75 for elementary and additional 15 mm-hmm. drop at, at those schools, uh, like a drop of three students. So it's kind of complicated. <laughs> As I'm telling you, uh, we have a we're going to training now. I went, uh, we had a two and a half hour one yesterday, and we'll have another one this afternoon in different areas of the city. Yeah. 
and just really going through the chart, uh, what does it mean, what does this contract mean, because it, it is, you know, people want to know how it affects them personally in their, in yeah. their classroom, so okay. it's very complicated, but the takeaways are 1.5, you know, nurses, counselors, uh, librarians, you know, again, getting some non-monetary items, the testing thing was huge, mm -hmm. and for the first time, we have a co-location article mm -hmm. in the contract yeah. and special education article that we are, you know, working to get relief for our special ed teachers. It was a little bit harder because the, the cap issues wasn't as clear, but we were able to um, have a committee that will help. Our members will have a voice on any changes to the service delivery model. So in the past, you know, like, they would just kind of start closing schools and saying, you know, we're going to mainstream and and so forth. But now our members will have a say in that, or a voice. So a lot of things just gave our members um, an opportunity to be involved in it, whether it's co-location, whether it's special ed. They, they'll have a voice in a process. So talking about one of the big things, too, was not... A bargaining, or not in the contract per se, but this school board vote that just happened. Tell us about that and why that was such a big deal in these negotiations. Oh my gosh, it was just incredible because we're talking about a charter majority school board that were, you know, several of them have gotten funding from the California Charter School Association. They're behind closed doors without any real public. Uh, uh, opportunity to give a vote or a forum, you know, to go to a forum about it. So they've been pushing a business model, and Gutner came out with his Reimagine LAUSD, which right. raised a lot of red flags because it, it was it wasn't it was very vague, and it, we find it still is vague. But it seems to follow the you know the portfolio districts such as New Orleans and, you know, the other places across the nation where it's been tried and failed. Yeah. So, of course, we're very, very concerned, and uh, we passed a, a charter cap resolution in, in UTLA and uh, were able to get this into the package before we end at closed negotiation. And uh, Butner, I think he kind of wanted to show that he was uh, he says, I've not, I don't like charter. I mean, I'm, I'm not pro-charter mm -hmm. and so forth. So he kind of wanted to show that. So he, he championed that. He actually talked to the school board to make sure that there was a majority who would vote for it. And, mm -hmm. and for Monica Garcia to not only vote for it, but to stand in front of a thousand of charter school students and parents who come and, you know, and to basically... Those are her people, right? Yeah. And basically vote against her people was, was quite astonishing. And what was interesting is they didn't tell these parents and students the truth about what this motion was about. They came crying about our closing the schools. So they clearly didn't understand, you know, what, what it was really about. It's, it's, you know, it's a moratorium, a local moratorium until there's more study, and it pushes for a state moratorium and that's where the power is because there's mm -hmm. you know the, the charter school law that uh, allows this unlimited number of charters so in and of itself it makes a strong statement to the state uh, that the largest you know school district in the in the state is supporting is advocating for this it will do a lot to make that a possibility 
So we've been hampered um, by the state law about charter schools really, um, you know, allowed to proliferate anywhere that they want and no accountability. And all of the fiscal mismanagement uh, that's happened that even charter schools are saying that they're, they're for this cap because um, most of them are under-enrolled as well and, and some of them close because of under-enrollment. So we, we've reached a saturation point that something had to be done uh, so it was pretty in- incredible, though, when you have a charter majority school board that votes uh, five to one to have a cap. Yeah, it was, it was pretty amazing. And so speaking of charter schools, you also had a charter schools that were on strike with you, and that also got a deal, right? Can you tell us about that? Yes, yes, that was exciting. We have three South LA charter schools operated by the accelerated schools. And uh, they voted, you know, to go on strike with 98.7% yes. And they were on strike for eight days. And the new contracts, you know, includes improvements aimed at reducing teacher turnover mm-hmm. by providing increased job security and improvement to their, their health benefits. So it includes like a three-month severance package, mm-hmm. including salary and benefits for any teacher who's not offering an employment contract from one year to the next and improve arbitration process that requires a unanimous vote of the accelerated board of trustees in order to reverse any decision made by an arbitrator, mm-hmm. an annual signing bonus of $10,000 for teachers who return to their positions at the beginning of each school year. Wow, that's a lot of money there. Mm-hmm. And the formation of a collaborative consensus committee for stakeholders to discuss issues and create and implement improvement to school-wide processes and practices, yeah. and an annual increase in the employer's share of health care costs. So those are the key things they want, and they also had a mediation, and it involved the LA City Councilman, Kern Price, right. who, who uh, helped that get that passed, and I know they, they worked till the wee hours um, on Saturday night to get that contract. What's it like with everybody back at school now? Yeah, so it's pretty incredible that, I mean, we just completed, you know, a, a strike that we hadn't had since 1989, and, and then the Accelerators was the second charter school strike in the nation that only happened, you know, Chicago's wasn't that long ago as right, well. Yeah. So it just, uh, I think it just feels um, like we're a part of history, and people are, are happy to get back to school. I think they felt a lot of love, many of them shared, you know, how the students made them cards and the parents had, had, you know, something for them uh, or the principal and the school staff. People really felt um, welcome back uh, and appreciated. And I think I'm hearing that from everyone. Even I was talking to a psychologist today mm-hmm. who said for the first time, you know, people are, are um, recognizing what they do and, you know, that, yeah, you guys work really hard and uh, we want we want to get more psychologists too, or we want to help you uh, with our their seven fifty to one ratio that we're we're trying to push, but the district actually didn't accept that part, you know, in the special ed um, table that we had asked for some of the uh, ratios. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, so there's a new awareness uh, and appreciation, I think, for for public school educators across the board 
So it's really boosted the morale. And we have a lot of um, people who want to, who are very interested in getting more involved in the union. And so we're looking at all the organizing opportunities in the contract because it's amazing when you see what's in there, like, for example, a green space task force, you know, or the community schools being involved in that aspect or the co-location. There's just, it just lays out a lot of ways that people could get involved. So we're going to have to be laying out some, you know, real clear steps uh, in terms of implementation of the contract. But we also are going to be doing a lot of um, school site visits and um, doing some reflection together, listening sessions, and finding out how we can change the balance of power at the school site and encourage uh, that activism and the power that people felt on the picket line to now translate to the school site. So that's going to be exciting to, you know, follow up on in the next month or so. Uh, and then also we have a whole now a statewide campaign that we are going to have to get more money at the state level. Uh, so we are already planning for the schools and communities first, the, the, um, the ballot initiative that will bring $5 billion more into education every year and starting to um, support that by bringing, we were talking about, you know, possibly bringing busloads of, of um, members and parents uh, to Sacramento and joining with the other unions across the state. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we have a coalition with eight of the largest unions in California, and we are definitely supporting Oakland yeah. as they have the strike vote now. And they will be the next uh, California strike. Uh, so it's we're building momentum, and we feel like this is just going to uh, keep growing. And like I tell them, UTLA will never be the same. We really have to seize all of the um, the activism, all of the energy, and all of the love that came out of the strike yeah. to take us to this, this next step. And we have to, as a union, we have to be, I think, very, very open to new ways of doing things, which is pretty exciting, uh, beyond even what we could see right now, and, and just kind of, it's it's been really organic in a lot of ways. I think our members have really stepped up in ways that we have not, you know, we were just totally taken by surprise, and they own, they own the contract, they're owning uh, their schools, it's just a whole sea change of... Yeah the feeling that, you know, educators have had in the past about being more of a victim versus being able to make the change. That was Arlene Inouye of the United Teachers Los Angeles. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. And now it's time for ARG. I wish I'd written that. My pick is called Why Are Young People Pretending to Love Work? by Aaron Griffith in the New York Times. The working class hero of John Lennon's day was an angry, contemplative soul, brimming with class war rage. But today, the heroes of the modern workplace are more likely to be incessantly grinning, ambitious, and put-together young whippersnappers, chronically sleep-deprived, surviving on a steady diet of triple espressos and Red Bull. 
The so-called burnout generation has come to romanticize the art of burning out in and of itself, elevating frenzied workaholism to a near-spiritual quest. The Protestant work ethic has been rebranded as a form of noble self-sacrifice for millennials who have fully internalized the dog-eat-dog mentality of neoliberalism. But since they are the rising precariat, they throw themselves enthusiastically into a masochistic cycle of overwork, economic instability, and juggling multiple low-paying gigs in order to boost their so-called portfolios while angling for a career path that will get them out of their chronic college debt. This so-called hustle culture, Griffith writes, is, quote, obsessed with striving, relentlessly positive, devoid of humor, and once you notice it, impossible to escape. The new work evangelism evokes something like both self-help prosperity gospel and Oliver Twist-like drudgery, but unlike the wretched poor of Dickensian novels, today's work lust centers around a culture of entrepreneurship, being a self-starter, pursuing your passion, dreaming of making the world a better place with every minimum wage contract gig. In a way, it is both a product and a benefactor of the globalization of the digital age. Griffith writes, quote, This is toil glamour, and it's going mainstream. Most visibly, WeWork, which investors recently valued at $47 billion, is on its way to becoming the Starbucks of office culture. It's exported its brand of performative workaholism to 27 countries with 400,000 tenants, unquote. But Griffith peels back the glossy edifice of this supposedly self-motivated hustle mania and reveals that it's actually just self-loathing internalization of an economic hierarchy. She quotes Basecamp co-founder David Heinemeyer Hansen. The vast majority of people beating the drums of hustle mania are not the people doing the actual work. They're the managers, financiers, and owners. It's grim and exploitative. It's a lot like work has always been since time immemorial, in fact. So is our hustle culture a reflection of our naive ignorance, our self-hatred, or perhaps a kind of millennial Stockholm syndrome? Maybe we've actually lost a sort of class consciousness that workers used to possess back in the day and replaced it with a form of learned helplessness that has no other route for seeking social redemption other than simply struggling up to the next rung of the ladder, seeking validation from corporate overlords rather than building one's own sense of self and autonomy and personal dignity. Perhaps millennials are simply resigned to this misery, overstimulated by social media, disillusioned by mainstream politics, You can't blame kids these days for feeling trapped in an alienating cultural landscape that worships material yet feigns gritty realism. Griffith notes that many of us feel like our lives outside of work are simply getting more and more empty, and work fills that void. Perhaps we've gotten a little hungry for meaning, she writes. In San Francisco, where I live, the concept of productivity has taken on an almost spiritual dimension. Techies here have internalized the idea, rooted in the Protestant work ethic, that work is not something to do to get what you want. The work itself is all, unquote. But a life lived solely for work isn't really worth living, is it? Yes, yes, I know. I myself, as an overworked journalist, need to be taking my own advice, and perhaps so do you. But there's plenty of good ideas for alternatives, and we should listen to them. Some advocate for shorter work weeks, others for a universal basic income and a broad welfare state, making the workplace look like it once did when we actually had a real weekend, eight hours for what we will. And all those could be a part of the solution to our material deficits in life. But to go back to that spiritual deficit in our everyday existence, maybe we should look toward what gave workers motivation back in the day. 
People channeled their anger and frustration with work into building resistance to it. The labor movement emerged as a way to harness public unrest into a popular campaign to bring about real social transformation for the greater good. It wasn't about glorying in poverty or romanticizing self-exploitation. Instead, the labor movement flipped the script on seizing power in the workplace. Instead of taking it all in stride, instead of taking every bad day on the chin, instead of taking every criticism from the boss with humility and a forced smile, we'd take something else instead. We take power back from the boss. And for once, what we do with our time, our energy, and our lives is our business. Billionaire Starbucks tycoon Howard Schultz has managed to unite the country around one thing, how much we all hate centrist billionaires. Schultz announced he was considering a run for president to widespread ridicule. Who asked for this? And then he went on a speaking tour promoting his newest book, which has an even cornier title than the last one, and proceeded to get heckled. But there's one group of people who may suffer needlessly from everyone's hatred of their rich boss, Starbucks employees. At HuffPost, Maxwell Strachan wrote a piece titled, Here's What Starbucks is Telling Employees to Say About Howard Schultz, where he dug up a bulletin sent to Starbucks employees about what to do if anyone, quote, shares aggressive political opinions. We should also note that Starbucks apparently calls its workers partners, which is even creepier than associate in terms of implying that people have power and say in the company when they very much do not. The bulletin reads, Partners may be asked questions by customers or hear media speculation about Howard's potential political intentions. We encourage you all to take a moment to review the talking points below with your partners. That doesn't that sound like they're telling him to go home and talk to their wife? I mean, come on. Anyway... If a customer asks if we're selling Howard's book at Starbucks, no, the books are available at bookstores and online. If a customer attempts to investigate or share aggressive political opinions, attempt to diffuse, and they spelled that wrong, by the situation by sharing, we respect everyone's opinion. Our goal is simply to create a warm and welcoming space where we can all gather as a community over great coffee. If asked about Howard's political intentions, Howard's future plans are up to him. End bulletin. But one Starbucks employee says they were told something else. They said that Starbucks had rephrased the instructions and did so in a way that bothered them. We were told not to talk to customers about it, the employee said, who added that they were told, if we are asked about his political goals or our opinions on it, that we are to say he was a great CEO to work for, but that's where our opinions end, end quote. The employees quoted in the piece were annoyed that Schultz is allowed to traipse around the country, saying things like unions are not the answer, while they have to paste on a smile and deal with it if customers raise questions about their boss. I find Schultz running to be extremely awful, another employee said. And meanwhile, at the same time as Starbucks pretends to be independent of Schultz's campaign, the company is shipping copies of his new book to each store for promotion. One copy per store, apparently. God forbid they actually give it to employees, even as Schultz claims he wrote the book about you for you. Those employees instead get a 50% discount on the book. What a gift. But if the man's books are displayed in the stores he supposedly no longer runs, what does that mean for his potential campaign? One thing's for sure, there are a bunch of baristas who are not fans. One last Washington State employee Strachan spoke to pointed out that Schultz, who has a $3.4 billion personal fortune, yes, billion with a B, opposed the Seattle minimum wage increase to $15 an hour. I can only say that as someone who works for a working class wage, it would be foolish of me to support a Schultz presidential bid, this worker said. I would be voting against my family's economic security if I were to support him. 
As a final note, media organizations, including HuffPost, saw a brutal round of layoffs last week. We support everyone who was let go at these organizations, including several friends of this show. And we want to point out that actual reporting like this is important. It matters. And it's a disappointment every time reporters are laid off so that the people at the top can create, collect more profits. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for more on West Virginia walkouts, labor law, and conversations about general strikes. There, thank you again to Descent for hosting us and Natasha Lewis for editing us and making us sound good every week. Thanks to you for listening. Even more thanks to you if you've rated us on iTunes, shared us with your friends, promoted us on Twitter or Facebook, or generally propagandized on our behalf. And an extra special thanks, as always, to our belabored sustaining members. Just $5 a month gets you an excellent belabored tote bag. We also have some fabulous new Descent t-shirts if you sign up to be a Solidarity subscriber to the magazine. You can find out more about all of that at the descentmagazine.org slash belabored dash membership or about our new solidarity subscription program and those t-shirts at descentmagazine.org slash solidarity. You can always email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org if you are a Starbucks worker having to talk about Howard Schultz, if you hate your job but have to pretend to like it, if you're a West Virginia teacher preparing for walkouts or a federal contractor not getting back pay. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. We'll be back in two weeks. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.